You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 52, The Morning After. Thanks for joining me. We left off last time on November 10th, 1799. The Directory had ruled France for four years, making it the longest-lived revolutionary government to date. But, as the sun rose on November 11th, the Directory was no more, overthrown in a two-day coup by a faction of centrist constitutional reformers, led by the liberal thinker Emmanuel C.S. However, it was not Siez who strode into the Tuileries Palace to set up his offices in what had once been the study of the King of France. It was General Napoleon Bonaparte. Siez had envisioned Bonaparte acting as the sword of the coup, a tool to be used to bring his faction to power, then put back on the shelf. But Bonaparte had used his participation in the coup as leverage to extract huge concessions from Siez. Napoleon had been voted emergency powers by the legislature, not Siez. And as the plotters formed the new government, Napoleon took the most prominent position, first consul. It was a remarkable turn of events. Bonaparte had essentially piggybacked on someone else's coup, and ridden it all the way to the palace. Napoleon released a statement giving what became the official version of events. Quote, I went to the Council of 500 alone, unarmed, head uncovered. They immediately raised their daggers against their liberator. Twenty assassins threw themselves on me, and aimed for my chest. The grenadiers, whom I had left at the entrance to the hall, ran to put themselves between me and the assassins. One of the brave grenadiers was struck, and had his clothes torn by a dagger. They carried me out. End quote. We know this was not the truth, but it was the story believed by most of the French public. I'd like to begin this episode with a little analysis of the coup. How had such a strange state of affairs come to pass, and what did it mean for the new regime? There's an anecdote I find useful, and a bit funny. The day before the coup, Emmanuel C.S. wasn't busy making last-minute plans or rallying his supporters he was taking a crash course in horseback riding. He knew that in the days to come, the conspiracy might need a metaphorical man on horseback to take the lead at the decisive moment, and worried he wouldn't be able to play that role because he literally couldn't ride a horse. 
it's almost too perfect as a metaphor for Siez's shortcomings as a leader. As I said last time, he was a thinker, not a man of action. Alone in his study, with his thoughts and his pen, Siez was brilliant. But when it came to the actual practice of politics and leadership, he was often out of his depth. I think this writing lesson shows that Siez himself recognized and worried about these deficiencies. The rest of the clique were all obscure politicians or intellectuals. The only member of the conspiracy with any hope of acting as a popular figurehead for the new government was Napoleon Bonaparte. But this wasn't just a question of personalities. Not so long ago, the key to success in revolutionary politics was the ability to mobilize the public. In the early 1790s, power flowed up from the streets of Paris, rather than down from the halls of government. But those heady days were long gone. By 1799, the common people were disengaged and nearly irrelevant to the political process. The decisive force in politics was now the army, not the mob. With each successive coup, the army's role in politics grew, and those who were paying attention became more aware of its power. From this perspective, it seems almost inevitable that the never-ending cycle of coups would finally culminate in someone from the army realizing that he could cut out the middlemen, so to speak, sideline the civilian politicians, and take power himself. However, it should be stressed that the new consulate regime was not some kind of military junta. In fact, according to the Constitution, military officers were banned from serving in the executive, and, in compliance with this article, Napoleon Bonaparte resigned from the French army. So here's a good trivia question if you ever want to annoy people. When did Napoleon's military career end? Well, technically speaking, he left the French army in 1799, and never returned. As we'll see, Napoleonic rule certainly had a martial character. The support of the army was one of the cornerstones of the regime, and Bonaparte's legitimacy was built largely on military victories. France would only be at peace for a few of the 15 years Napoleon ruled. And so, as you might expect for a state engaged in near-constant warfare, the military played a pretty big role in public life. However, the state itself was never fully militarized. And Napoleon's base of support was much larger than just the army. As we'll see in coming episodes, the First Consul would soon forge a broad, diverse coalition, which would prove surprisingly durable through the trying years ahead. In the immediate aftermath of the coup, intellectuals were an important source of support for the new government. Remember, Emmanuel C.S. was really more of a thinker than a politician, and his personal circle was full of fellow intellectuals even after he left the world of letters behind to re-enter politics. Others were brought on board by Joseph Bonaparte, whose wife Julie hosted a regular salon that was influential among the intellectual set. Napoleon had courted this constituency for years. Remember, before he'd left for Egypt, he'd gotten himself elected to the Institute of France, the French equivalent of Britain's Royal Society or the National Academy of Science in the USA. During his time in Italy, Bonaparte had sent cultural and artistic treasures back to France, along with money and his carefully worded dispatches. He'd framed the expedition to Egypt as a scholarly and scientific enterprise. The reports, artifacts, and specimens that his team of savants sent back to France had dazzled European intellectuals. 
In the weeks before the coup, Napoleon took care to appear in public wearing the uniform of the Institute of France, rather than his general's attire. He wanted to remind his intellectual supporters that he wasn't some sword-swinging brute, but a serious thinker who shared their enthusiasm for the life of the mind. This desire to be seen as an intellectual probably came in part from Napoleon's own ego, but it was also smart politics. This was the age of the Enlightenment. A huge proportion of the upper and middle classes fancied themselves as amateur intellectuals. Only a tiny proportion of the population were actual professional philosophers or scholars, but any well-rounded gentleman or lady would be expected to at least be aware of the current intellectual discourse and recent advances of modern science. Debating the issues of the day at salons, writing philosophical essays, and engaging in scientific exploration were popular and highly respectable hobbies for people of means. So, on their own, the intellectuals of France were a small, relatively insignificant group. But their support carried a lot of weight among other groups, who mattered a great deal. The classes who controlled the economy, administered the government, owned most of the land, and sent their sons to be military officers and civil servants. Napoleon understood these people. He was one of them. Yes, the Bonapartes were technically aristocrats, but they were so poor and obscure that Napoleon's life experience was closer to that of the striving bourgeoisie than the privileged high nobility. Throughout his career, he'd relied on his education, talent, and service record, not on his family name or wealth. He recognized that at the turn of the century, people like him were the backbone of France. The future belonged to the merchants, financiers, lawyers, clerks, and doctors. Napoleon would make himself into their champion and avatar, and in return, many of them supported his regime. But on the morning after the coup, this process had only just begun. What about the immediate reaction to the events of 18 and 19 Brumaire? Police Minister Joseph Fouché was very interested in this question. He was responsible for safeguarding the new regime at this vulnerable moment, and so he dispatched his agents to gauge the mood of the public. An historian named Nicole Gauteri managed to dig up some of these reports, and judging from their contents, Fouché and the new government had very little to worry about. According to the secret police, the public was in, quote, a lethargic sleep, end quote. The Paris mob was still feared by anyone who had lived through the early 1790s. This was one of the main reasons the coup plotters had moved the action from the Tuileries Palace in the heart of Paris to the more remote palace of Saint-Cloud. But there was no significant reaction on the streets. The sans-culottes were exhausted. Their political power had been broken long ago. The press coverage of the coup generally ranged from neutral to hostile. Paris had a crowded, raucous journalism scene, with dozens of papers jostling to attract readers. By 1799, most of these publications leaned conservative, even crypto-royalist. The right-wing press blasted the coup. This was quite predictable. The conservatives hated the directory, but they wanted to see it replaced by a return to the monarchy, not by another set of centrist republicans. If this new government proved to be stronger and more stable than the last one, it would put their dreams of crowning a new king further out of reach. Surprisingly, the left-wing press was much more muted in their criticism. 
None of the radical papers were outright supportive of the coup, but many of them stopped short of denouncing the new government. This was a bit strange, given that the consulate had been born out of a dishonest crackdown on the left. But at the end of the day, the left and the government shared an interest in protecting the republic, and shared an enemy in royalism. Everyone knew the directory had been weak. If the government was going to fall, it was better for the left that it fell to centrist republicans rather than right-wing monarchists. For their part, the new regime went relatively easy on the left. During the coup, they had made all kinds of wild claims about a dastardly radical conspiracy. But once these lies had served their purpose, the new government dropped this pretense of an imminent violent clash with the left almost immediately. Only around 50 people were arrested. None of them were executed, and many would soon be pardoned or have their sentences commuted by Napoleon. The police censors were quite busy during this period, but their main target was actually media that supported the coup. Their goal was not to quash dissent, but to maintain domestic tranquility. It was decided that anything too triumphalist might inflame the resentments of those who opposed the coup, and so Fouché's men devoted themselves to silencing their own allies in the press and popular culture. This would set the tone for censorship in Napoleonic France. For Napoleon's police, the greatest sin was not opposing the regime, but sowing discord. But, of course, discord is in the eye of the beholder. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Out in the provinces, some local governments dutifully sent letters of congratulation to the new regime, signaling that they were willing to serve the consulate just as they had served the directory. But these were the minority. Out of the 89 departments in France, only 13 took the initiative to send their promises of loyalty to the consulate. The rest were either in opposition, internally divided, or staying neutral until it became clear which way the wind was blowing. There was some scattered resistance in conservative areas, mostly in the form of royalist demonstrations, some of which became quite heated. Ominously, there was also an uptick of violence in the Vendée region, which had never been completely pacified after the bloody royalist uprising of 1793-6. through But remember, the conservatives had been thoroughly purged from politics only two years earlier. There was hardly anyone from the right in any position of power who might capitalize on these sentiments. It was a different story on the other side of the spectrum. In left-leaning regions of France, local governments were full of left-wing politicians, some of whom refused to recognize the new regime in Paris, or even attempted to rally their constituents against the coup. In one village, the left-wing councillors took down a picture of Bonaparte from the walls of the town hall and threw it into the fire. 
In the city of Grenoble, the National Guard refused to take an oath of loyalty to the new government. Out on the front lines, there were reports of disapproval among the officers in both the Army of the North and the Army of Italy. All of this discontent could have snowballed into a real problem for the consulate. But these disparate nodes of resistance never coalesced into a unified opposition. There seems to have been little public appetite for a confrontation with the new regime. The consulate sent out representatives to every corner of France, and order was quickly restored. Within a few weeks of the coup, the authority of the consulate reached every hamlet in France. All things considered, this was a pretty muted reaction to a sudden violent change in government. Fouché's spies were right. The people seemed to be in a lethargic slumber. Only a few years earlier, hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen had taken up arms to fight and die over politics. Now, hardly anyone seemed to care. Some of this apathy came from simple exhaustion. Average people had seen so many governments come and go since 1789, it was hard to get terribly excited about yet another coup. There was also the matter of repression. Politics had been a hazardous occupation for the better part of a decade. Over the course of those years, a lot of people who might have been inclined to take up arms or agitate had ended up dead or imprisoned. Many others had learned from their example. Keep your head down and steer clear of politics if you value your life. But even taking these factors into account... It's remarkable how quickly and easily the new regime solidified its control over France. Napoleon's personality had done a great deal to ease the transition. Bonaparte was, without question, the public face of the new regime. He was by far the most well-known of its ringleaders, and the Bonapartist propaganda machine was working overtime to cast him as the leading figure of the coup and the government. And the simple truth was... Napoleon was popular. Most average people in France considered him a military genius and a patriot, and credited him with delivering peace at the end of the ruinous War of the First Coalition. Bonaparte also maintained a strategic ambiguity about his own political stances. His public statement about the coup seems deliberately vague. Quote, We desire a republic founded upon true freedom, upon civil liberty and national representation, and we shall obtain it. I swear this in my own name and that of my comrades. Over the last two years, the Republic has been misgoverned. You hoped that my return would put an end to so many evils. You celebrated it with a unanimity which imposes upon me the obligations I am fulfilling. Liberty, victory, and peace will return the French Republic to the rank which it formerly occupied but lost thanks to incompetence or treason. End quote. Liberty, victory, and peace sounds great, but without some specifics as to how they might be achieved, it's just empty sloganeering. Napoleon had never held any formal political office, and thus had no record anyone could use to pin down his views. This meant he could present himself as all things to all people. In left-wing papers, Napoleon planted stories that painted him as a stalwart defender of the Republic who cared about the common man. To centrist audiences, he presented himself as a steady hand, a source of stability, and a bulwark against the extremes of both left and right. 
He even made overtures to conservatives, signaling sympathy for Catholicism and the plight of noble émigrés whose lands had been seized by the revolutionary government. He sweetened the pot by releasing a huge number of political prisoners, the biggest amnesty since the beginning of the revolution. This was technically unconstitutional. The first consul didn't actually have the authority to issue pardons. Napoleon didn't care, and nobody stopped him. Not a good sign for constitutionalism and the rule of law in the new regime. Not everyone was taken in by these gestures of goodwill. As we saw, there was some resistance to the new regime, but this propaganda offensive seems to have had some effect. There were leftists who toasted the coup under the impression that Bonaparte would strengthen the republic and entrench the gains of the revolution, not knowing that elsewhere in France, many of their conservative opponents were doing the same thing, believing Bonaparte would end the revolution and restore the monarchy. In a sense, Napoleon would eventually give both groups what they wanted, but not in the ways they expected. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Above all, Bonaparte sold himself to the people of France as a peacemaker. He had delivered the country from the War of the First Coalition, or so he claimed, and now he would deliver them from the War of the Second Coalition. One of his first acts as consul was to send personal letters to the British king and Austrian emperor, expressing his desire to end the bloodshed and return to the pre-war status quo. From his letter to London, quote, Should this war, which for the last eight years has ravaged the four corners of the globe, be eternal? Are there no means of extinguishing it? How can the two most enlightened nations in Europe, which are stronger and more powerful than their safety and independence require, sacrifice commerce, internal prosperity, and domestic happiness to ideas of vain grandeur? How can they avoid feeling that peace is the greatest necessity as well as the greatest glory? These feelings cannot be foreign to the heart of your majesty, who governs a free nation for the sole purpose of rendering it happy. End quote. Napoleon actually despised England, but he rarely let personal feelings get in the way of political necessity. There was zero chance of either monarch agreeing to these terms, and Napoleon knew it. Britain had never accepted the pre-war status quo, which is why she had remained at war with France. The Austrians only signed the Treaty of Campo Formio because their own armies were breaking down, and Napoleon was at the gates of Vienna. They too had found the new status quo intolerable, and only accepted it as long as necessary to rebuild their strength. A year of war had resolved none of these issues. But although these letters were addressed to King George and Emperor Francis, their true intended audience was the general public. Bonaparte ensured both letters were widely published. This helped create the perception that the coalition were the aggressors, and that Napoleon was an honest peacemaker who had extended the olive branch only to see it swatted away. 
It's worth mentioning that this narrative was not terribly far from reality. True, during the uneasy peace after Campo Formio, the Republicans had done a lot to provoke their rivals. Indeed, Napoleon himself had been intimately involved with many of these provocations. However, it was France's enemies who had taken the final step of returning to open warfare. As he prepared for the next year's campaign, Bonaparte would present himself as a reluctant warrior who fought only because France's enemies refused to consider peace. This was the right image for a country weary of war. 18 Brumaire would be the last coup of the revolution. The intermittent chaos which had gripped the political system for a decade was over. There would be minor gradual changes, but the government was about to settle into a new equilibrium, which would remain relatively durable for the next 15 years. But very few people in France were aware that they had just passed such a significant turning point in the history of the revolution. The consulate had managed to secure control over the entire country, but its grip was still weak. As first consul and later emperor, Napoleon would dominate this regime, to the point where most historians classify it as a personal dictatorship. But this was not the case in the weeks and months immediately after the coup. Many of his fellow conspirators still imagined the new regime was a shared enterprise. In the coming episodes, we'll see Napoleon cure his former allies of this misunderstanding as he consolidates his own power. Hopefully, that gives you a useful snapshot of the political situation in France in the aftermath of 18 Brumaire. But I do want to dwell on the coup a little while longer. We're embarking on a new chapter of the narrative here, so I think it's worth slowing down a bit to unpack the significance of this moment. I generally try to avoid quoting historians on this show. I figure if you guys wanted to hear someone reading from a book, you'd just go out and buy an audiobook, rather than tuning in to hear me give the Reader's Digest version. But I want to start out this section with a quotation from one of my favorite historians, Georges Lefebvre. I don't think anyone has ever done a better job of summing up the meaning of the Napoleonic regime in a short, pithy paragraph. Quote, his victories assured that the work of the Constituent Assembly would endure and become permanently rooted in French society. More than that, his victories enabled French ideas to sweep over the continent, with a rapidity and efficacy which neither propaganda nor spontaneous diffusion could have equaled. Had he not implanted the fundamental principles of the modern state and society in all the countries which he dominated, no trace would be left of his smashing campaigns. His contemporaries always saw him as the soldier of the revolution, and it was as such that he made his mark on European civilization. End quote. That gets right to the heart of it. By 1799, the revolution seemed to be nearing the end of its course. In the early 1790s, much of the country was ecstatic at the prospects of this unique historical moment. It seemed possible for humanity to turn the page on the insanity and suffering of the past and enter a new age of reason, humanitarianism, and progress. Hundreds of thousands of average people all over France had been willing to charge onto the points of bayonets and into the mouths of cannon to defend this dream. But, as we've seen in past episodes, that optimism was repeatedly dashed by the difficult realities of civil conflict, war, and economic hardship. 
in its place came apathy and cynicism. Not only in France, but all over Europe, the Age of the Enlightenment was coming to a close. All intellectual movements eventually run their course, but in the case of the Enlightenment, the Revolution probably helped hasten the end. Fairly or unfairly, the French Republic was seen as a test case for the doctrines of the philosophes, and as the century drew to a close, many Europeans believed that test had proven them to be disastrous. Many early supporters of the Revolution had hoped that democratic constitutional government would create freedom, and that freedom would lead to a dramatic improvement in the condition of all mankind, bring out people's best impulses, while banishing superstition and tyranny, which they saw as the root of most of humanity's troubles. No government could have lived up to those lofty expectations, particularly not a new, unstable regime beset by civil war, economic crisis, and external invasion. The growing ranks of critics of the revolution charged that it had, in fact, achieved the opposite, that the so-called freedom of the French Republicans turned out to be nothing more than a new kind of tyranny, and that far from bringing out the best in humanity, it had unleashed the worst violent instincts of the mob. Personally, I don't think the chaos and bloodshed of the revolution had very much to do with ideology. But many in Europe did, particularly among the upper and middle classes. Even many people who had initially followed the events of the revolution with hope and optimism had now turned against it. A conservative wind was blowing through the literate classes of the continent. The disaffected intellectuals of Europe were searching for new doctrines ideals which might speak to the emotional and spiritual side of the human soul, which was often neglected by the coldly rational ethos of the Enlightenment. In time, these impulses would coalesce into the next great intellectual movement to sweep Europe, Romanticism. In Napoleon's day, Romanticism was still in its prehistory. It was more of a feeling or a mood that writers, thinkers, and artists had just barely begun to explore or express. But even at this early stage, the roots of Romanticism were already having an impact, particularly on the bourgeoisie. Writers and philosophers were turning away from the cult of reason to explore the spiritual and even mystical side of the human experience. They celebrated faith and emotion as healthy expressions of the soul, rather than primitive impulses to be tamed. Religion was making a comeback all over Europe, in Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox countries alike. This trend was present at all levels of society, from popular religious movements that ministered primarily to the poor, to intellectually sophisticated theologians, who won back many of the literati to the churches they had abandoned during the Enlightenment. In England, the liberal rationalist deism, which had been so popular during the 18th century, was dying out and Methodism was on the rise, which preached a personal relationship with God, cultivated through public piety and works of mercy. Enlightenment thinkers admired commerce and industry, which they associated with progress. Many of these proto-romantics preferred the countryside, with its tranquil silence and more traditional way of life, which they believed provided an important connection to the distant past. This had obvious political implications. The revolution had been led by the bourgeoisie, backed by the urban workers, the social classes most connected with trade and production. Meanwhile, the countryside was dominated by the aristocracy, 
the archenemies of the revolution, and populated by peasants, many of whom resented the centralizing, secularizing currents coming out of the big cities. That's a very brief and incomplete overview of the intellectual trends of 1799. I don't want us to get too bogged down in philosophical history, but it's important to at least touch on the basics, because this intellectual climate had big political implications. Keep this backdrop in mind, then think of how exhausted the people of France had become with revolutionary politics. Is it any surprise that royalism remained so persistent, even grew in popularity despite official repression? Try to get into the mindset of a middle-class French person. All of a sudden, there are all these conservative ideas floating around your world. Maybe you go to a party and find that many of your peers are talking about rediscovering their Catholic faith. Or maybe you attend a salon, where someone reads a mystical poem supposedly written by an ancient Celtic bard, and you find yourself relieved to be discussing a moving piece of art rather than another dry political essay. Every news story you read about the directory leaves you frustrated and hopeless. You worry that they might not be competent enough to prosecute the war. After witnessing so much suffering and death over the preceding years, the old revolutionary slogans seem hollow, perhaps even obscene. But the economy is finally recovering from the crisis of the early 1790s. You're making money and able to save and spend normally for the first time in years. When it comes to politics, you have all kinds of sophisticated arguments honed by reading philosophy and debating at salons. But deep down, you mostly just want the chaos, corruption, and incompetence to stop, so things can finally return to normal, and you can keep making money and living well. I think it's easy to see how someone like that might have been amenable to the restoration of the monarchy, even if they had initially been a supporter of the revolution. The republic seemed to have run its course. Conservative ideas were back in fashion. If the revolutionaries couldn't create a stable regime, why not try bringing back a form of government which had created stability in the past? Looking at the state of France, and of Europe more broadly at the end of the 18th century, an informed person might easily conclude that France would soon be ruled by a king once more, and that the revolution would soon be rolled back and forgotten to be looked back on only as an historical aberration, an eccentric failed experiment without any real legacy. But that's not what happened. While Napoleon did step back from many of the ideals of the revolution, he formalized and entrenched its core principles, not only in France, but all over Europe. He proved it was possible to build a stable, successful state on Enlightenment principles, like meritocracy, equality before the law, constitutionalism, and personal liberty. Under Napoleon, the French government co-opted this rising tide of conservatism, rather than being engulfed by it. On 18 Brumaire, the revolution and its ideals were on life support. The new regime gave them another 15 years of life, albeit in modified form. Napoleon spread these revolutionary ideas in the lands he conquered and the empire he built was so overwhelmingly powerful that his enemies had no choice but to copy his methods, adopting many of the ideas they claimed to be fighting against. Many Europeans wanted to forget about the revolution and return to business as usual. Napoleon did not let them, and when he was finally defeated and exiled, 
It had been too long, and too much had changed, to go back to the way things had been before. Carried on the shoulders of Napoleon's armies, the revolution spread across the continent, and left an indelible mark on European politics, culture, and society. In Bonaparte's lifetime, that influence reached the Americas, and over the course of the 19th century, it would spread to the rest of the world. Bonaparte would ultimately fall short of his ambitions of making France the permanent hegemon of Europe under his own dynasty. However, by the time he was defeated, this question of which type of state and society would dominate the future was settled. Today, no country in the world resembles that old regime model. We are all living in the shadow of 18 Brumaire. That's why the coup is such an important milestone not only in Napoleon's life or in French politics, but for the whole world. In the next few episodes, we'll take a look at how Napoleon consolidated his power, and what he did with that power once it was secured. We will also take a closer look at France itself, which we haven't really done since the beginning of the show. Until next time, thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Dot com.